Good afternoon, brethren. Great to be here. 1982 was the first year that the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, began to track the number of deaths from a disease called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency syndrome. In that year, 451 Americans died from GRID. Political pressure was put on them. The name was deemed to be politically incorrect, and so it was changed to AIDS, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. Three years later, in 1985, 7,000 Americans died from AIDS. By the 90s, tens of thousands of Americans were dying from this disease called AIDS before they managed to develop uh, treatment to control it. But it was an epidemic. Epidemic coming from the Greek epi, meaning upon, and demos, the people, something that was upon the people. It actually became a pandemic, which means pan, well, all territories, all over the world, began to suffer from this pandemic. When the CDC is dealing with epidemics and pandemics like this, what they look for is the index patient, or what they call patient zero. Where did this begin? Because if they can identify patient zero and then see where and how quickly it spreads, they can then forecast where, how quickly the epidemic will continue to spread. So patient zero becomes critical to learning how to control and how to forecast disease. For AIDS, they identified patient zero as Gaetan Dugas. Gaetan Dugas was born in 1953 in Quebec City. He was a flight attendant and extremely promiscuous. Now the thing about AIDS is initially it manifests it's HIV. And somebody can be HIV infected or positive for years without knowing it. So as he was infecting others, and they became infected, they in turn were infecting others. And it would take five to 12 years before HIV would become full-blown AIDS. Today, we have another epidemic. It's actually a pandemic. It is spreading quickly all over the world. And it's called hysteria. Hysteria. The world is gripped with hysteria. Last month, you had an election. And Donald Trump was democratically elected as your president. The next day, all over the world, including Canada, there were 600 women's marches protesting your election. I saw in these protests Americans taking the American flag and wearing it as a hijab. And not just women. Men were taking the American flag and wearing it as a hijab in protest to your democratically elected president. Now, as I understand it, the American flag 
must not be worn as an article of clothing. That is treachery. And yet this hysteria has so gripped even Americans that even American men are engaging in treason All around the world, there was this slogan, women of the world, unite. We find out later that the organizer, or one of the co-organizers of these marches, was Linda Sarsour. Very interesting, because Linda Sarsour is a terrorist. Linda Sarsour is fighting for Sharia in America. Now, as I understand it, Sharia says that wives can be beaten, and no one is to ask why. That a woman's testimony is worth only half of a man's. That if a woman is raped, if she cannot produce two male witnesses or four female witnesses, she's to be stoned to death. That last year, 200 million girls were circumcised and had their genitals mutilated under Sharia that it's fine to have sexual intercourse with prepubescent girls, that's totally permissible, that a husband can divorce his wife just by saying, I divorce you three times, that a woman cannot leave her house without a male, and that she's not to be in the presence of non-family males, oh, there's an exception, unless she breastfeeds him 10 times, then she can be in his company. This is Sharia. that upon death, a husband can continue to have intercourse with his wife's dead body because it's his property. And that raping female ca captives is not only permissible, it's encouraged. So this is the woman who believes all of this, wants to bring this to America, who is organizing these women's marches. And all around the world, women are engaged in fighting. Women of the world unite. We want Sharia. This is a form of madness. How did we get here? How did we come to this madness? It very much reminds me of George Orwell's 1984. We got here through political correctness. And in 1984, if you haven't read the book, the key to brainwashing society is to remove words from the vocabulary, to remove words from the dictionary. Because we think with words. And if we take these words out of circulation, we, we can no longer think properly. We can no longer think clearly. And that's what political correctness is doing. It's removing words from our vocabulary, and it's removing our ability to think critically. Revelation 20. Revelation 20 and verse 3 says that in, this, in the end time, the sa Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit and shut up. And a seal will be set upon him. And when that happens, that he should deceive the nations no more. So this hysteria that we're seeing all over the world, the devil is at work. The devil is deceiving all nations. And, and they don't know. They don't know that they're playing into the hands of the devil. Revelation 13. 
we see where this is all leading, where all of this political correctness, all of this hysteria, all of this revolt, this political correctness is leading to Revelation 13 and verse 4. That the, the human beings who were designed and created to worship God and to bear his image, these same human beings, rather than bear the image of God, rather than worship God, this is where we're heading. They worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That this beast obviously is some sort of military force. And, and it's all about conflict and conquest. And the people love it to, to be so. They worship the military might of this political entity. So whether it's CNN or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or in our case, the Globe and Mail, all of this media, they're all working together, knowingly or unknowingly, to this end. 2 Samuel 15 has an interesting scripture. In 2 Samuel 15, we see the turmoil with David and his sons and the fight for the throne. And in verse 10, Absalom is making a play for the throne. 2 Samuel 15, verse 10, But Absalom sent spies throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So this sort of political intrigue, and, and, and revolution, it's not new. It's just thousands of years old. People have always wanted power and will do what they can to get power. But here we see Absalom in, in the theater and playing his part. But verse 11 is what I want to draw your attention to. And with Absalom, this traitor, this revolutionary, this person seize, seeking to seize power, with him went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they didn't know anything. They were completely ignorant. They were useful idiots. And with this hysteria that we see all over the world, we're seeing millions, hundreds of millions, of useful idiots. There, there is an agenda. There is a political agenda. Something is happening, and people are only too happy to be useful idiots, puppets. It's all going to come together. But on WikiHow, there's an article that you can look up. I don't suggest you look it up, but you can look it up. <laughs> How to be a feminine guy. It says this, many men are now choosing to get in touch with their softer feminine side. This guide is merely a series of numbered tips none of which need to be carried out in any particular order, to become more feminine in manner and appearance. Take what you want from this article, and remember that you, and only you, should decide how you appear, not anyone else or their opinions. Let's contrast that with 1 Corinthians 6. So there's an appetite for this. People want the tips. T tell me how I can appear more feminine. 
and it goes on to show how, how, how to show your softer side. Meanwhile, women are marching to become more masculine. What's going on here? 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is coming. And, and some of us are going to, some of us human beings, we're going to be in this kingdom. It's coming. And if you're not in this kingdom, you're ashes. We are ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So Satan is deceiving everybody. You don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. God takes exception to men being effeminate. And he takes exception to women being masculine. He created us male and female for a reason. But there's some sort of uh, agenda here to mix it all up. And now we're dealing with transgenderism. We can't even send our little girls to the bathroom. It's all confusion. Why? What is going on? That's what I want to talk about today. That's what I want to explore with you today. And in our exploring, I want us to explore marriage. I want us to look at marriage with a, with a new lens, given what's happening in our world today, to see that the very solutions for what's happening are in the marriage covenant. That the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is in the marriage covenant. I want to first examine the root cause of this hysteria. I then want to look at the marriage bond as the solution. And then for all of us in the church, what can we learn from marriage to inform our conduct in the church? So let's look at the root cause. Let's look at marriage as a solution. And then let's use that marriage bond to inform our behavior in the church. So who is patient zero of this worldwide global hysteria? Who's patient zero? Well, when we hear women all over the world with the global chant, women of the world, unite! That should sound familiar. Well, I, I think it should sound familiar for those of us who used to study history. Now that we've abolished history, this probably doesn't ring a bell to anybody who's uh, perhaps younger than, say, 30. But women of the world unite sounds a lot like workers of the world unite. When there was this call for global communism and that nation states would collapse to replace or be replaced by a global utopian society. The philosopher behind this was Karl Marx. And I'm going to submit to you that Karl Marx is patient zero. That the hysteria that we see around the world today can be traced back to this philosopher and his philosophy of communism. A little bit about the man. First, he was terrible with money. He could not manage money. He made decent money. He just spent it all. He was always in debt. 
and constantly borrowing from friends and family and never repaying them. Constantly at the pawn shop, there was a point in his life where neither his wife nor his children could leave the home because he was the only one that had clothes. He had pawned off all their clothes. He had a maid whom he never paid. Workers' rights, and he never paid his maid. Not only that, he impregnated her. Talk about worker abuse. And yet he's there writing the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, decrying how workers are treated under capitalism. He came up with a series of predictions around how the Western capitalist societies would collapse and how people would choose the global utopian state rather than their own nation states. That there would be economic depression and that there would be world war. And this would usher in a global utopian communist society. He had a lot of disciples that believed in his fundamental premise of class warfare. That the bourgeoisie who owned the capital uh, would be revolted against by the proletariat who only had their labor. They basically could just sell their labor. They had nothing else. That they would see worldwide that this was a problem and overthrow the capitalists. He actually wrote, they had nothing to lose but their chains. Well, World War I came, and rather than unite, the workers of the world, particularly the Western world, stood up for their nations. They were patriots, and they fought for their nations. And this confused all the Marxists. They were demoralized. They were confused. They didn't know what happened. And so a group of thought leaders formed a think tank in Frankfurt, Germany, which would affectionately become to known as the Frankfurt School, but they actually called it the Institute for Social Research. And they wanted to give it a name that didn't cause any alarm. So pretty innocuous, the Institute for Social Research. Their purpose was to figure out why Marx was wrong. They couldn't believe it. Why didn't the workers think rationally? and make decisions in their own best interest. Instead, they chose to defend their nations. So this Frankfurt School formed of powerful intellects, people smarter than Karl Marx, to try to figure out what happened and how can we re-engineer Marxism so that we can have global communism. At the same time, Hitler came to power and they had to flee Germany. And guess where they came? America. So the Frankfurt School, these German Marxists, came to America. Because they were so intellectually gifted and powerful, they landed in your institutions. And they spread across the country, taking over the universities and infecting young minds with their Marxist theory. The clever conclusion that they came to was that the problem with the workers in the West was the family. That inside the family, they were passing on Judeo-Christian values to their children. And because of that, 
when the adult worker was given the opportunity to revolt, they saw their nation as a family. And so they weren't just fighting for their nation, they were fighting for their extended family. And they said, we've got to destroy that. And so with the help of Freud and his psychology, they set about to shift from economic Marxism to cultural Marxism. Then instead of a class warfare, let's create a cultural warfare. It'll still be the haves against the have-nots. But this time, it's the white male, the white Anglo-Saxon male, represents the haves. Everybody else is the have-nots. So we are going to mobilize and empower women against the white male, children against the white male, blacks against the white male, Hispanics against the white male. Oh, homosexuals against the white male. Transgender against the white male. Oh, Muslims, yes, bring them in against the white male. And we are all being played for fools, useful idiots, to overthrow Judeo-Christian values. Now, Christianity came out of the Middle East. North Africa were the thought leaders of Christianity. All that happened was Islam took over the Middle East and North Africa. Enslaved, destroyed, slaughtered our spiritual ancestors in the Middle East. And so Islam became the black religion. And the Christians then, Christianity then went west because of the preaching of Paul. And Christianity became the white religion when it was never intended to be racial. But now the white male represents Christianity, and all the other ethnic groups must rise up against the white male. The particular people who came to America, Max Horkheimer was the leader of the school when they came, Theodore Adorno, who wrote The Authoritarian Personality, which was the key to understanding the need to destroy patriarchy and, and the white male. It was his thinking in particular. Herbert Marcuse, who wrote The One-Dimensional Man, and we can draw a straight line from Herbert Marcuse to Saul Alinsky to Hillary Clinton to Barack Obama. There's a straight line. It comes right out of the Frankfurt School. So for eight years, your president wasn't your friend. He was dismantling the American system. This morning, there's a photograph that's gone viral. It's in New York, and it's a picture of a Muslim woman with her uh, burqa, so just her eyes are showing, sitting beside a transgendered man who looks, pardon my language, like a slut. And they're together, and this picture's gone viral. And some are saying this is what's right with America, and some are saying this is what's wrong with America. But this is cultural Marxism. These are the disadvantaged groups that the intellectuals of, your, of America are saying we must empower and mobilize the Muslims, the transgenders, Black Lives Matter. And all of these useful idiots are falling into these protests and this hysteria because it's part of cultural Marxism.
now. God is for family. When God came into the earth, Luke writes his genealogy, and it shows patriarchy, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. So God endorses patriarchy. When the shepherds came looking for Christ, they found the babe with mother and father, nuclear family. God chose to come into the world through the nurture of the nuclear family, the husband and wife. But let us begin our study in Genesis 1. Genesis 1. What are we dealing with? What's the solution? Genesis 1 and verse 1, Moses writes, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know, we could just stop right here and spend the rest of the sermon unpacking this. This is profound. If we understood this, it would put, it would put pay to all the false religions. That God didn't create the heavens against the earth. He created the heaven and the earth as a unit, as a complementarity, that the heaven and the earth were one and intended to be together to the point where Christ comes and says, pray, thy will be done in heaven as it is in earth. It's just, it's not done in the earth. It should be. There should be no difference. Heaven and earth should be a unit. And that's what God intended. We drop down to verse 26, and on the way there, we see all of this creation. Actually, let's go to verse 31. We see all of this creative effort over six days. And on the sixth day... God saw everything that he had made, the heavens and the earth, and behold, it was very good. If you look at the Greek and the Septuagint, or the Hebrew, it means exceptionally beautiful. It's like God created this, this system of complementarity, the heavens and the earth, the dry land and the sea, the animals and humans, the man and the wife, and it all worked as a unit. It was all complementary. And God looked at it and said, this is, accept I, this is great. This is awesome. Like, wow. That's what God saw when he saw this. Exceptional. Then we come to verse 26. God said, let us make man. So after uh, making all these creatures in their own likeness that they reproduce after their own kind, he says, let us make man in our image. So this is the first thing we understand about man. We are not of the human kind. There's, there's no such thing as the human kind. There's animal kind, and there's God kind. And we are God kind. And so God, being the Father and Christ, in discussion with each other, said, let's make man like us. So there's something about us which is to reflect God and Christ after our likeness. Then we see that as we come on the earth, we're to have dominion over all things on the earth. In other words, we are to be God on earth. Adam was made a king, a vice-regent 
that under the authority of the Father and Christ, he would have authority over the earth. Was that authority by his, by, on his own? Look at verse 27. In this effort then to make man in the likeness of God and Christ, God created man in his own image. It really, it, he did it. The human project began. And he formed the man in his own image, on the earth. He created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. That that complementarity between the woman and the man reflects the complementarity between the Father and Christ. We will say masculine and feminine. This is just a human construct to explain initiating decisive energy, being the Father's, and supporting energy, being Christ. We then put that in a human context, and the man is to reflect the energy of the Father and the initiating energy of the Father, and the woman, that supportive energy of Christ. That two can only work together if they're complementary. And the Father and Christ were complementary, so he made the man and the woman complementary. Nothing works. These lights, the electricity, unless we can plug it in. And there's a joining, a male and a female come together to close the circuit and make a unit, then things work. So it was never intended that there should be conflict between the man and the woman. From the design, it's to be complementary. He even says so in verse 28, that he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. They were given work to do. If you look at chapter 2, it's not that boy meets girl and says, I love you, and then just consumes the girl for his pleasure, or vice versa. That the unit was a unit to work, meant to work. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man be alone. I'll make a help suitable for him, complementary to him. So, so the woman was made to complement the man to, for a purpose, to do work. Verse 20, Adam gave names to the cattle. So he's identifying the different animals, understanding their idiosyncrasies, their natures, and deciding how to best identify them, how to best name them, because he's governing them. In verse 23, after God then puts him to sleep and makes another being from him, after he's named all the animals, he says here, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called out of man because she came out of man. In other words, Adam, in identifying this being, says, I want all generations, everybody that comes out of me, to know that the woman is complementary to the man. Not in competition, but complementary. 
and we see in verse 25 that the man was with his wife. They were married. In chapter 3, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. In other words, Satan... Here's how it works. Masculine energy initiates. It controls. When it's dysfunctional, it abuses. Feminine energy supports. When it's dysfunctional, because it's weak, it seduces. It deceives and seduces. The animals reflect feminine energy to Eve, because Eve is in control. And so they're not going to confront her, or Satan is not going to choose an animal to confront her. He's under her. So he chooses the serpent, which is most subtle, to come with supportive, deceptive energy. It reminds me of this song by The Temptations. I don't know, smiling faces. It's maybe the way I'm singing it, you don't recognize it. Yeah. It says here that uh, smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. They come with a smiling face because they're weak. So they shift to feminine energy. Until they can get the upper hand, then they shift to masculine energy to destroy you. And that's exactly what happened here. So he deceives Eve, and he deceives Eve by saying, this is in your best interest. It's good for your food. Which is why Marx couldn't understand, and the Marxists couldn't understand, why did the proletariats not revolt? This was good for food. This made economic sense for them, and yet they didn't. And so they had to realize, we've got to go at this a different way, and still we appeal to self-interest, because that's always the, the Satan's device. We see in chapter 6, then, marriage goes haywire to the point where God repents, and he's grieved over making mankind. It was, it was beautiful. It was exceptionally beautiful, and now it's completely dysfunctional. And the marriage is only producing violence. What should marriage be? Well, you know, I've always wanted to be married. From when I was six years old, and it's another story. But as I was getting closer to getting married, I, I thought, I, my marriage has to be successful. So I read every book I could possibly find. I became an expert in marriage. So much so, that I started to give couples advice. Even though I wasn't married and the advice was unsolicited, I just felt that I had to share my expertise. <laughs> I had no clue what I was talking about. And I, I, I soon found that out. When I got married, my wife did not fit anywhere in any of these books. <laughs> she just didn't fit. In, like, you're not supposed to be like that. It says here on page 273, <laughs> I soon found out She's her own human being, unique. There's no one else like her. And we had to work out our complementary relationship. The book that I should have turned to is the Bible. Look with me at Ephesians. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Clearly, it's a complementary relationship. It's not a competition. It's not about one controlling the other. It's about each 
submitting, helping each other. Wives, submit yourselves to all men in the church because you're a woman and these are men. That's what a lot of men think the Bible says. It doesn't say that. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Not to other men, not to other women's husbands, to your own husbands. As unto the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. So the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And we know from other scripture that the father is the head of Christ. So in order for the world to work, we need complementarity. Someone needs to be in control, someone needs to initiate, and someone needs to support. And so man was made in God's image because this is how God works. Christ always does those things that please the Father. And, and the, the church should always do those things that please Christ. And so within the marital bond, the wife should submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ because he is the head of the wife. Therefore, as, uh, the way that the church is subject unto Christ, in that way, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, I would love to just stop right here and say, there it is. Okay? Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. But that's not how complementarity works. The, the, the devil could get in the middle here. The husband could go off the rails and think that he's some sort of demigod over the wife. So God gives instructions now to protect the other side of the complement. And he says here, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. So the Father loves Christ. Christ submits to the Father. Christ then controls the church, but he loves the church, so the church submits to him. It's all good. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, to the point where he sacrifices himself. That's the kind of love he has for the church. Are we safe submitting to Christ? I think so. He loves us. He came and was brutalized to save us. It's, it's good. This authority is good. Verse 29, or verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Adam said, Woman is out of the man. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. Dropping down to verse 32, this is a great mystery. Mystery means it's not apparent. It's very hard for us to fully understand this. But there is something about the husband and wife which is profound. It's profound. It might take us thousands of years to fully grasp what this is but it is very profound. This is the answer. This is the answer to all of the troubles in our world. And this is what the Marxist understood, that when a human mind is shaped inside a healthy family, a loving husband and wife, you can't turn that person into a dysfunctional revolutionary. So they have to destroy the family. They have to destroy marriage in order to produce human beings that can be useful idiots, that can be hysterical at the drop. Everybody's outraged at everything except the right things. Now, this cascades into Ephesians 6, where when we see this 
functioning couple, we then see children obey your parents. So now it's parents and children. Children should be that submissive, supportive energy. Parents should be that controlling, initiating energy. But it's all positive because the parents love their children and the children submit to the parents. When these children grow up, then you see in verse 5, they become servants or employees that are obedient to their employers. And then in verse 9, we see the other side. Masters, the employers, are do to do the same thing to them. So in everywhere we see these human relations, it comes out of the marital bond, where one human mind learns to interact with another human mind in a healthy, loving, functional way. Lots of trust, understanding how authority works, happy to have authority. That authority is a good thing. It's part of what God saw when he said, this is exceptionally beautiful. And when we have that couple working like this and children coming up in that union, they become healthy adults. And they, as a human mind, can then engage with another human mind, another spouse, uh, making their own family, or an employer. I now work for you. You're my boss. But my mind has been shaped to understand authority. And your mind has been shaped to understand authority. So everywhere human minds join, it's healthy. All beginning with marriage. And we see then in Mark 10, on the way to Jerusalem, when Christ is going to be destroyed, that the disciples are arguing over who should be on his right hand and his left hand. They see this opportunity for authority in the kingdom, and they want it. And he says, in verse 38, don't be like Eve. Don't make decisions out of self-interest. Be a different kind of mind. And in verse 38, he says, you don't know what you're asking for, but then he says in verse um, 42, you know that they which are accounted to rule, this is how the Gentiles exercise authority. They exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, upon them. But it shall not be so among you. The kingdom of God is different. In the kingdom of God, we represent the image of God. We come back to the way we should have been when Adam was created, and we do not abuse authority that the, the one in authority always acts in the best interest, even to the point of self-sacrifice of those he is, or she is placed over. And the one under authority always submits. So here he tells them how they should be, but he doesn't leave it here. This is, it's not a one-sided equation. To see the other side, let's go to Hebrews. So yes, those in authority should be the servant of all. in order to be like Christ. But in Hebrews 13 and verse 17, we see the other side. Obey them that have the rule over you. So those that have the rule over you, be servants. But those who are under rule, obey those who have the rule over you. And submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls, as they which must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So all of this now, brethren, brings us to Titus. Let's go to Titus 2. Titus 2. Now we're dealing with the church setting. 
what happens inside the church setting? How should we conduct ourselves inside the, the congregation? Paul writes to Titus to speak the things which become sound doctrine. So lots of viruses out in the world, a lot of idea viruses, a lot of philosophies getting into people's heads, turning them into hysterical. In, in, in this context, when human minds are going hysterical, we are to preach the things that become sound doctrine. And what does sound doctrine look like? Everything we see here now has to do with conduct, how one human mind engages with another. That when we have sound doctrine, we're able to withstand the infections of Marxism and, and Nimrodism and all of these false philosophies because we have sound doctrine. And this is what the cultural Marxists concluded, that Christianity is a problem. We will never have global communism as long as there's Christianity, as long as there are Christian families. So let's do everything we can to uproot and destroy the Christian family so that we can destroy the Christian mind, so that we can destroy children, so that when they grow up, they do our bidding with no reservation, no conscience. But here, the things that, that become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober and temperate, that the aged women the same way, that they teach, verse 4, that they teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. So, so the women now are in authority over the children, but they need to learn how to be in authority over the children, to be discreet, obedient to their husbands, verse 5, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So this, this marital bond, if it's broken, it blasphemes the word of God, that the young men should also be sober-minded. Verse 9, that servants should be obedient to their masters, to please them well in all things, and don't talk back. This, this is the Christian mind. That they, verse 10, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, so self-interest, we deny this. You, 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 Satan comes and says, this is good for food, and we say we're not interested. Because it's not about ourselves. It's about Christ. And it's about serving and helping others that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil world. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. So it's really important to Paul that Titus understand that the, this, this understanding of Scripture needs to be in the minds of the brethren. Otherwise, we'll become infected with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the world. Let's go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Finally, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So the male and female were created in the image of God. That the, the, the unity and complementarity between God and Christ was then reflected in the human being with the man and the woman. But the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, 
were a symbolic representation of what was to come, Christ and the church. And finally, after much blood, sweat, and tears, we're now ready for the marriage. It's a lot of blood. It's a lot of sweat and a lot of tears. But we finally get here when we're, we're ready for the marriage of the Lamb. His wife has made herself ready. This is a, a mental, spiritual thing that has to happen. As long as we have rebellion in our hearts and resistance to authority, we're not ready. So if we pick up the spirit of the age, we can't marry Christ. We have to understand marriage. We have to understand how authority works with one human mind and another. And, and that flexibility, I'm in charge this time, and when I'm in charge, I'm loving. Now I'm under charge. I'm, I'm in submission. And, and I'm obedient. I understand how to, how to submit. It's like the man that, uh, the Gentile, when, when Christ came and said, don't come to my house. I, I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. Just say the word, Lord, and my servant will be healed. Because he understood authority, how it works, and how it will work in the kingdom. So he says here, it was verse 8, granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. There has to be a, a shift in how we think in order to have this fine linen. And he said, right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says unto me, these are the true sayings of God. There are many patient zeros. Mary Mallon became known as typhoid, typhoid Mary. She was patient zero for typhoid fever. A 44-year-old school teacher named Mabalo Lokila was patient zero for Ebola. 64-year-old Liu Janlun was patient zero for SARS. A baby in Soho was the patient zero for cholera. There's patient zero for the swine flu. There are many patient zeros. There are many philosophies spreading all around the world, infecting human minds and turning them into rebels, unfit, useful idiots. There are many patient zeros. In marriage, we have the antidote to all of these false philosophies. In the way that the minds were created to be complementary and to deal with authority lovingly, this is the solution. We have it. And in this solution is how the human mind learns to couple with Christ's mind. If we don't learn this, there's no point in us living forever. Eternity lies in understanding how the human mind couples with Christ's mind. And we learn that in marriage and family. Jesus said, he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, that they have no need of a physician except those who are sick. All of us are sick. All of us are broken. All of us suffer from the legacy of Adam. We need Christ to heal us. And within our church congregations, there should be peace. There should be complementarity. God, the world is broken. 
You know, God went from looking at the world and saying it's exceedingly beautiful to being grieved and having to destroy man and start over with Abraham and the marriage covenant with Israel. Let's make it so that when God looks at the world and he's grieved with all the violence and conflict in the world, that when he looks at our congregations, he sees something exceedingly beautiful. He sees the understanding of marriage and the complementarity and the importance of authority, the beauty of authority and, and, and the relationship to authority within the church. Because the church is the seed of the kingdom of God. So let him begin to see the seed of the kingdom of God in our congregations. It's not in the world, but it's here. And it's going to sprout and it's going to spread all over the world. And the knowledge of God is going to cover the world the way water covers the sea. We'll conclude in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We've come from Genesis all through all the Bible. The story of man. Lots of blood shed. Lots of tears shed. Lots of sweat. We finally come to Revelation 21. And Revelation 21 is the new beginning. Revelation 21 takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 where the human project began. It went sideways. Christ came, put it back on track, recruited us. We are now following the second Adam, and now we come back to where God wanted to be in the beginning. Had Adam taken the tree of life instead of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then we could have gotten here faster. But here we are. Revelation 21, verse 1. Finally, now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It was never intended that, you know, the spiritual is over there and the material is over here and never the twain shall meet. It was always to be complementary, always to be a unit. And now with the new heaven and the new earth, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because God himself will be on earth as part of the whole complementary unit and system. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay, we're done with that now. And also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The husband is Christ. The bride is the church. The New Jerusalem comes down as the adorning of the church because the church is married to Christ. In my house, in my father's house, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here it is, we all have a place, and we all go into this new Jerusalem, married to Christ. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The question is, brethren, will we be here? Because God is a God of authority. What kind of minds are we developing 
and will they be the kinds of minds that are complementary to the God mind? We've identified patient zero, but we've identified the antidote. Let's commit to developing the mind of Jesus Christ.